Welcome back to Significant Watches, everyone. This is episode nine. Today, we're going to start this episode by doing a deep dive into condition. Often, you'll hear that condition is the most important thing when evaluating a watch, especially a vintage watch. But what does it even mean for a watch to be in good condition? Eric, we're going to start by going to you here. You've been known as a condition guy. You've built your reputation on finding watches in great condition, and that's why people come to you. In your HSNY talk, which just crossed 50,000 views, by the way, so congrats on that. Towards oh, wow. Second... <laughs> I, had, I had no idea. That's great. <laughs> Towards the second half of that, you have a watch checklist or the wind checklist, as I like to call it, where you run through some of the things you look at when evaluating a watch. Many of them are condition focused. So evaluating the dial, the hands, the loom on both of these, the case for polishing, the case back to see if it matches the case, the serial number to make sure it lines up, the movement, and then any manufacturer info you might be able to find. And then, of course, the other components of a watch that might be there, pushers, crystals, crowns, etc. So can you talk a little bit about this checklist that you put in your HSNY talk and then how you talk about or how you think about evaluating a watch when you're offered one or when you're thinking about acquiring one? I guess part of the, the broader reason for discussing this is the recent Wall Street Journal article by Kate Murphy, which was great. Uh, and we we'll talk about provenance in a little bit, but... Um, you know, condition is become the new rarity is, uh, is one of the, the things that people often say, you know, it's not about having a rare watch. It's about in many cases, having a more common watch, but in outstanding condition. So for me, uh, everyone knows I like, uh, cases that are unpolished if possible, you know, the architecture of the case, the clean lines for vintage Rolex sport models like Submariners and GMT Masters, the beautiful original bevels uh, that were applied to the edges of the lugs. They call them chamfered edges or, or beveled edges. Um, all of that, you know, a Carrera, for instance, as you know, Tony, like an unpolished Carrera from the 60s is a very different beast than a super polished one uh, from the sixties. So, and, and you had a couple nice ones recently, Tony. So, um, it just, it just is phenomenally different. Now <clears throat> there was a famous, uh, debate, if you will, between Ben Clymer and me on a Hodinkee radio episode. Um, I want to say Eric, I had that as a question. You're, you're obviating the need for a host here, but yeah, let's get into it. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to tee it up because I think a couple of years ago, you and Clymer were on the Hodinkee radio podcast and they kind of hold, held you out as the case guy. Um, while Ben was quote unquote, the dial guy. So I wanted to ask you about the importance of a sharper unpolished case and then how you place emphasis on that as compared to, um, the dial. Yeah. So, uh, both are very important. You know, if you have a dial that, that looks very ugly, you know, which is obviously a subjective thing, but, um, with a, you know, uneven damage, maybe water damage, things like that, instead of, you know, something that, that aged in a more uniform, say tropical way without water being involved in the process or, you know, other times dials just can age badly, you know, particularly due to environments, but sometimes the paint peels on its own, uh, just was a bad batch of, of paint applied to the brass dial plate or things like that. Um, so, so for me, you can't have a really ugly dial and, and have a, have a beautiful case. Um, 
you know, it's got to go together hand in hand. Um, and ultimately, I like watches as original as possible. Uh, for a few years, I've heard a lot of people echo the sentiment that up to 90% of the value of a watch is found within the condition of the dial. Do you think that that is going to be something that's a, a changed notion? And, and what percentage would you say is, is a fair one to apply towards dial and case or any other factors? It's always hard to quantify, you know. So I gave the talk in the HSNY, basically the HSNY talk, I make the point that for some dials, like a cloisonne dial, it might be 99.99 repeating percent value of the dial <laughs> versus if it did not have a cloisonne dial. Um, but like for a vintage Rolex or uh, Patek Philippe, you know, time only or world time or something like that. So dials are of critical importance. People do not understand that a lot of Patek Philippe watches, probably north of 99% that exist, uh, have had cleaned dials, not necessarily reprinted, but where the markers are removed and the, the dial itself is sanded with a fine sandpaper. So you see these striations in the dial and the markers are then reapplied often, you know, in an imperfect way because of how they attach to the dial. They get kind of stretched or moved. There's just, you know, no one's trying to educate people about that because um, dealers don't want to educate people about that because they wouldn't have uh, have any, you know, ability to sell most of the watches that go through their hands. So um, I would say I'm not particularly beloved by a lot of dealers for educating people about condition, but, uh, you know, it's just what I care about and it's better people are aware of what they're buying. Do you find that like a lot of the 1930s watches, particularly when we're talking about like Cartier or any, any sort of tanks, these um, rectangular watches that weren't necessarily designed to be hermetically sealed, those ones will often have a lot of, um, you know, oxidation or, or even perspiration that have, that have permeated the watch in, in some sense. So that's kind of one of the things that I think is, is not necessarily it's not necessarily accepted in some cases on, on on most brands, but maybe for like Cartier, for instance, that's one of those exceptions where you'll find that it's almost it's almost impossible to find something that hasn't been reprinted from that era, or if it is, that there's going to have to be flaws in that sense towards the dial. Or yeah, that's absolutely the case. Cartier is a is a big exception, I would say. Patek Philippe as well, because there's the dial restoration of sanding, washing, cleaning, but it's still the original hard enamel on it. Vacheron as well, in many cases with their hard enamel printed watches. Now, by hard enamel, people don't understand, but for Patek Philippe, basically until about 1960, almost all of their watches had dials where they would basically press in the Patek Philippe or Patek Philippe and Co. signature. Uh, and for the earlier ones, Patek Philippe and Chi for company, CIE. And then they would fill it with a hard enamel. The The beauty of that is when you sand it, the hard enamel mostly remains, but the dial will get lower and you do create the striations, but it looks much cleaner and like new. That's just, they still do that to this day. If you send in your, your 1940s or 50s Patek Philippe, they'll, they'll clean the dial and remove metal. The issue is, for instance, in the A in Paddock, the top of the A where the two lines meet often 
that enamel gets worn away. So it looks like a chimney and people call that a blown A um, because you'll lose the top, you'll lose uh, other parts of the signature more than some. So uh, that that's, and it can end up looking a little bit worn when you start removing uh, enamel, you know, which is just a byproduct of the sanding process. So, um, you know, it's important people are aware of these things. Are there any other dial companies well, in this sense, Paddock, you know, m- much of their history is aligned with the Stern Ferreras company and those dials are arguably considered the highest quality dials, right? But are there any other dial makers that you think have made, you know, a, a dial that essentially can withhold to some degree that type of sanding or, you know, a little bit of, of restoration in a sense? Like, is there other names that come to mind that you see, I guess, that type of occurrence happening, but it doesn't necessarily destroy the entire dial and it has to be reprinted in a sense? I mean, arguably that that's as good of dial as, as you can have because it can be lightly restored like that without affecting the printing per se. You know, a lot of vintage Audemars Piguet is just a printed dial on all these VZ movement watches, which I love. A lot you see are totally reprinted because it's not hard enamel. And very few APs had hard enamel. Of course, a notable exception is the 5516 Perpetual Calendar, um, which they made six in the second series, three in the first series, and those all had the most beautiful uh, enamel uh, all hand done throughout a the stern, dial. A stern dial as well. Yeah, and um, they're they're absolutely phenomenal. You know, the, the, the two probably most, well-known dial manufacturers for vintage watches are Stern Frere and uh, Singer. And Singer, of course, did the chronographs for for Daytona's, particularly the Paul Newman dials most famously, but they also did Omega Speedmaster dials, the uh, Hoyer dials, you know, Carrera dials, uh, pretty much all Hoyer dials and uh, and many others. So, you know, but there's there there are other great dial manufacturers as well that just aren't as as appreciated. And when you factor in things like you know dials that were luminous, um, you know whether it's a Patek or any other brand, even Cartier, for instance, you see a lot of that issue occur with the degradation of the dial being compromised in some sense. Like, what's the what's what's your approach to that? And, and also, Gabe, if you want to chime in on that, I know you're a vintage watch guy and you have plenty of watches with Loom being that you're a uh, a little bit of a adventurer and, and combat fiend. Yeah, I mean, um, for me, I, I think I think the dials are, are pretty important, at least for me, and tend to look at first originality for uh, correct hands, correct uh, Loom evenly. Uh, patina to aged loom and the dial, the dials, the quality of the dials, um, and I, and you know, that's typically what I'm, what I'm first drawn to, um, because that's what I'm looking at. And then it matters if, uh, you know, if you're expecting the case to be super sharp, but that to me is, a, is sometimes secondary, depending on the watch. Um, there's some really cool stories about about 
some watches being recased, for example, for Patek, they were um, accidentally recased. Uh, and so I think around there's one or two that are floating around 3700s that were recased. And they ha- also have the original case because the people complained. So there's like some cool quirks about some cool stories where, you know, there's a there's a little bit of an oopsie made um i think i think with rolex it was standard that they would uh polish the case for a long time you know whenever i get something serviced i always say you know please make sure underline it bold don't polish don't clean the dial and if you replace the crystal for whatever reason include the original crystal back to me and anything else even if it's broken and in pieces i just i kind of like to stick to it uh with all the original and have it together. So. Do you um, do you add any of your credentials from the past so that way they take the uh, requests a little bit more serious that you'll hunt them down if there's a case that gets <laughs> repolished or a dial redone? It's like, okay, let's just make an exception and, and do a little bit more due diligence on this process for him. <laughs> uh, no, no, but, but you know, I usually reserve that for the auction room where I tell people that I'll uh, – throw chairs at them <laughs> you know if i see them bidding on certain things uh, but uh yeah i mean it's it, you know it, it kind of reminds me and i don't know if we're going to touch on this later but uh, the don poncho the vacheron where they included the original and i really appreciated that they included the original with the uh, the new dial that they made for it um i mean it, the original dial was just totally beat up um, so, so I thought it was, it was a nice touch that whoever bought it yeah. has both of them and so they can put it back if they really wanted to. Um, that was, that was a good restoration, uh, job there or service. And that was, that yeah. was arguably one of, you know, the most complicated wrist watches. Um, I think that's a 19, was it late twenties or early thirties, uh, wrist watch? I think it was somewhere yeah. around that ballpark, but it was a highly complicated retrograde calendar, and then it repeated as well. So this was, this was one of those ones that Vacheron really did take a lot of initiative in making sure that things were done to not upset anybody. But I mean, for instance, like in watches that are less important, right? Do you think that that's something that should be an initiative from brands like in the Vacheron realm, even lower tier brands to take that sort of initiative and do a completely different dial if they do happen to feel the need to do restoration or what have you and keep that original dial to send back to the owner? I don't think that many other brands that are in a lower tier or maybe even similar tier larger have a restoration department or have the ability to even remake a dial from say the twenties or thirties, just because, you know, they may just press control P for the dials and then they get cut and then put into the watches. And so there's no one there to actually, who actually works on dials beyond just the cleaning um, or maybe the relooming. So I, I, yes, it would be really nice to have that offered perhaps for a fee from a third party, you know, a a third party that does it, but I I can't see it being widely offered. It just seems too clunky, uh, time consuming and, possibly too expensive to to create a department that offers restorations and and you know even that type of a more intensive service um having seen a lot of service departments that typically seems to be a, a pretty good profit center for for brands they just want to churn out as many services as they can as quickly as they can um rather than really 
you know, take everything apart, make sure that you know, everything's as is, as was, and keep everything. Uh, it, it just doesn't seem feasible. Um, so, you know, as much as I'd love to see it, uh, I think, you know, there are a couple of brands out there that can really do that. And the rest, unfortunately, don't probably don't have the capabilities or even the desire to do it. One of the brands we've seen do it, I think, is Cartier, obviously a ginormous brand. And we've seen it a couple notable times, I think, in the past few years. Charlie wrote a great article about the Fred Astaire, Frank Leach Jr., Cartier tank scene tray from the 20s or 30s that at some point in the last couple of decades, Cartier restored the dial and restored the watch. And then they did the same thing over the past few years with another Sintre, very similar to that one um, with the exploding Roman numerals, cathedral hands, and all of that stuff. This one was in white gold. Um, so another beautiful watch. Historically important, I suppose. Um, I think probably the only known of their types, one in white gold, and then the Frank Leach Jr. one, Felix Leach Jr. one is in yellow gold. And that the white gold one sold just last year at Phillips for something like $300,000. A lot of people thought it was a lot of money for what at the end of the day was a, a restored dial. I guess I don't really have an opinion on that part of it, but Eric, I'm curious your opinion on when it is okay for maybe it is the manufacturer to restore these types of watches. Maybe it is a third party or if there's a difference between the two for you and what the market is like for these types of restored watches. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. <clears throat> a, a notable kind of vintage Cartier dealer was offering a, a watch to a client in the US and he said, isn't that dial reprinted? And he said, yeah, no one cares about the dials in the Cartier world. Only vintage Rolex people care about dials. So it was pretty funny. <laughs> but um, it's kind of true. You know, a huge percentage of the vintage Cartier watches we see are reprinted. And many that purport to be original are, in fact, reprinted because... There is apparently uh, an expert dial reprinter that a lot of people use that makes things look uh, original in that old school kind of way. These these dials, like particularly the London Cartier dials, are not super high quality. If you look, the printing's very thick and uh, and kind of kind of junky when you compare it to <laughs> to watches from Patek Philippe or or things like that. So it's very easy to replicate. And um, there's just a lot of minefields in in some of the high-end vintage Cartier pieces generally. There's watches with certificates of authenticity that are bad. And, uh, uh, you know, essentially they would just produce certificates for anything. Um, so, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't know if this conversation I've heard outside of the past one that I had with you, um, Eric, but it's funny that you mentioned the Cartier London dials looking to be a little bit, you know, not, they're not really that high quality. And oftentimes that's pretty evident that they are restored, but you know, there is a lot of romanticism associated with the Cartier London story in that sense, because of the great designs, right. In the 1960s and whatnot. And it's kind of, there, there's this whole allure to that collecting genre within Cartier. But in my opinion, it seems as though a lot of the Cartier New York watches that I've seen tend to be 
in better shape, particularly when we're talking about dials. It doesn't seem as though that there's as much restoration or at least funny business that's going on. And perhaps that's because people haven't really found that that's the most, um, you know, lucrative market or subsection of Cartier. But do you, do you want to kind of expand upon that? I think we talked about it, but I think it would be kind of a fun one to share with listeners. Yeah. So, uh, you know, people can read the, the great book, uh, by Francesca, but, um, there are obviously kind of three separate, but equal branches of Cartier. There was Paris, London, and New York and New York. I've always thought had some of the coolest watches because they were cutting deals directly with Swiss manufacturers to sell them, particularly Acre Le Coultre in the 1950s. They had IWC, there's even Omega, there's Omegas, the Rolex, et cetera. Those were almost exclusively sold in the US. Uh, and no, they're not like the the tank designs we know. Of course, they also sold tanks that they they sourced uh, from from their, you know sibling uh branches obviously paris particularly london just sold london in london but um those uh i like the sound of that london just sold london in london but i i have always thought that the new york i mean i guess particularly being an american and other things but these were watches that were printed at the manufacturers or for the manufacturers in switzerland uh super high quality interesting watches we have lots of uh, ads, you know, that show them from Cartier with Jaeger Lecultras and others in them alongside Cartier Paris watches. You know, I just think all, all that story hasn't really been told. Uh, Gabe has quite a special Cartier uh, that came from me. Uh, Sourced by you. I think you're more, uh, yeah, you're more qualified to talk about it, but if I'm not mistaken, it has the, it has the UG movement in it. And then it was put together by JLC and then it was imported by Vacheron with the VX import codes on it and then retailed yeah. by Cartier. Yeah. So it's yeah. four, four different important watch companies working together. There's only a few known of these steel Cartier chronographs from the early forties. It first came on my radar uh, with uh, John Jacob Astor, the fourth, uh, we sold a watch that he gave to a good friend uh, as he went off to the European theater, a colonel um, from his family when I was at Christie's and, you know, I was super perplexed by it. And then I found less than 10 total in the vast majority have reprinted dials, maybe two uh, don't have reprinted dials. Um, so it was... Uh, it's just a special watch. You know, these were like clearly targeted toward wealthy New Yorkers heading off to war essentially. And, and the universal Genève caliber was at that time, uh, pretty much the only watch that had had a 12 hour register. So they were probably going for technical capability first because that was going to be helpful for long flights and things like that. If you were a a pilot, say a bomber pilot or things, you would fly for a long time. Um, and, and it'd be important to have that measuring rather than just 30 minutes or 45 minutes. Eric, you posted a really cool watch today. And I also had the three register. Is, is that same movement? It's yeah, it's uh, or, you know, part of the same family. Yeah. This one had the date 
the Datto Compax is kind of not a common model because it was slightly less expensive than the Tri Compax, which had the moon phase. Um, but I kind of <clears throat> like that um, Bo Foster, who was uh, in the army, a pilot, bought that model. You can imagine him kind of being like, the date would be very helpful when I'm flying around, but I don't need a moon phase. <laughs> so I'll just save like, you know, five or 10 bucks to, to buy that model <laughs> instead of the moon phase version. Um, and uh, Bo Foster wore that watch during his service in World War II. He was given the Legion of Honor by the French government. He, reading online, he he was very critically important for helping American soldiers and and the Free French Army get to safety when they were kind of reinvading France to retake it in 1944. So uh, he would spot some free areas when he was flying around, and then basically radio down where where people should go to get to safety. Um, but of course, most famously, in what I posted, he transported. Gehring, Hermann Gehring, uh, from Austria the day after he surrendered to Germany so he could be interrogated by the Seventh Army. I couldn't put everything in the post because of word limits, but when Gehring surrendered, there were still reportedly Nazis that were kind of loose uh, in Austria. So the U.S. military was in fact concerned that they would try to jailbreak Gehring and they said, we need to get him out of here like as soon as possible. And Gehring was 300 pounds. So the plane that um, that Foster typically flew, which was called an L4 uh, reconnaissance plane, was not, not big enough to carry both of them. So he had to get an L5, which he hadn't flown in years. They had one left. And then they're both packed in there basically like sardines. Gehring couldn't get the seatbelt over his waist, in fact, so he just held it. <laughs> and and then Foster's thinking, like, you know, is he going to, like, try to grab my gun or, or what? Because he's just flying solo. It's him and Gehring. You know, there's no escort or anything else. And he's was arguably the most important prisoner they had. Uh, <laughs> so he was uh, he was very, uh, you know, it. it was all fine, but he didn't know what to think, you know, or what to expect. And I, he didn't say this, but I imagine like he was willing to bring the plane down if he had to. I, I felt like uh, if, uh, you know, if things got out of control and Gehring was trying to take over the plane or something. So it was just kind of a crazy thing. I love, the quote, I love the quote you added there that he in the in the letter he wrote to his wife, but uh, you know about about Goering, which was so funny. Yeah, he was. He was. That's what I was key. just pulling up. He was. He said several times. I had the impulse to turn the plane over and see if I could shake him out. But he was wedged in like a champagne cork. He acted as though he was, and then the part about he acted as though he was going on a sightseeing tour. Um, yeah, it's very He's, funny. Yeah, Foster, Foster said, Gehring's like, look at that, look at that. And he was like pointing things out the window. That's where we were, all this sort of stuff. And he wouldn't talk about Hitler at all, which was very interesting because they had fallen out of favor toward the end of the war. Uh, so he didn't mention Hitler. But at the end of the plane ride, Gehring gave him a Heil Hitler card that he signed. Um, and it's 
was part of the same auction where the watch was. That was too creepy, but it came with his uh, his uniform, Foster's uniform as well. It was like Foster's issued watch, which was I think an Elgin, you know, standard time only with a with like a beige dial, and then his his U.S. military uniform. Uh, and then the Heil Hitler card Gehring gave him when he landed. So it was one of the more expensive lots, but the Universal was was the most expensive. They should make a uh, mini series on this and get all the watches back together for the uh, for the filming of it. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah, and um, then Gehring so- was wearing a Universal as well, no doubt in the plane, which is insane. Um, the super oversized forty four millimeter compacts non-luminous Arabic numerals, uh, had his signature engraved on the case back. And, uh, that one sold at auction in 2016. So it's kind of crazy. They were both wearing steel universal Genève chronographs in that plane. That story kind of transitions us nicely into a wall street journal piece that you were quoted in recently, Eric. The crux of the piece really, to me, seemed to be about the importance provenance has played in driving up the prices of certain vintage watches, some that are either interesting for historical reasons or because they're tied to historically important individuals. One of the examples the article uses is, of course, author Ralph Ellison's Speedmaster that sold for more than $600,000 last month at Phillips. Um so Eric, I thought we would we could talk a little bit about the push and pull between provenance-driven watches like that and placing an emphasis on watches that are in good condition. Yeah, I mean, I think ideally you have both uh, together. You have it all, you know, provenance and condition and um, just a great special watch. Um, so uh, I, I was excited that author Kate Murphy really didn't know a lot about vintage watches when we started talking and she loved, you know, like the Winn-Dixie safe driver watch I showed her, which has the driver's name engraved on the back for 10 years at working at Winn-Dixie and, you know, the Domino's pizza story with the engraved initials on the back for the franchise owner or managers that were managing the stores and then TSM, under it on most of them on most of them which was uh thomas s monahan the ceo of domino's you know those she likes the the idea of earned watches if you will and i like it too um just a really interesting neat story and i think those things to me are cooler than the the multicolored uh rolex ops that everyone's going crazy for <laughs> these days um so uh, yeah, I think that was kind of the crux of it. And, and it's always interesting to see what happens after the after a story like that comes out. But I've gotten probably five pretty interesting emails from people who read the article. One guy with an amazing Rolex chronograph, his father won for winning a race in the 1960s. Uh, really, really interesting watch. So it's actually a 6234 with a solo Rolex dial, but, but in 1967 and, and typically the six, two, three, fours were kind of finished by the fifties. So very interesting. Um, Rolex still would make those on special order for people that wanted the telemeter track, um, through the sixties, but, but it sort of was not part of the catalog, 
Um, I just got sent photos of a Patek Philippe pocket watch that was uh, owned by the son of a Florida governor and has spent its whole life here in Florida. Uh, his, this guy's grandfather bought it in 1913, uh, from the, from the paddock retailer in Florida. Um, and, uh, you know, just incredible, incredible stuff. So that's really neat. And, um, you know, one guy sent in a Rolex date just that his, uh, father received, uh, after 25 years at a brewery in the state of Washington, and it's engraved on the back. Like, you know, it's just such a cool thing. The, the the stories that go along with these watches make them really special. Gabe, when you see a watch that might have some sort of provenance like that, either as indicated on an engraving or something on the dial, maybe there's other paraphernalia or whatever that goes with the watch. Is that more interesting to you as a collector than something that's in great condition? Or how do you think about um, collecting watches with great provenance as opposed to ones with great condition? Uh, typically, I like the the cool provenance to be military related. Uh, I think there's a, generally a lot of really cool uh, military paraphernalia that 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 comes with it. Um, so I, I put more emphasis, for example, on an interesting provenance than on condition, especially for military watches. Um, I I don't as long as it's mostly it's it's original and it's unpolished for the most part. I'm quite forgiving when it comes to the military watches. So I, I think an interesting provenance adds to the story and the history and just the interesting, just the whole package for the watch. It makes it that much more interesting. Um, otherwise, you know, I've, I've seen people try to put premiums on, um, you know, from the family of the original owner or, you know, has coming from an important collection. And then, you know, you're like, whose collection? It's like, oh, just some schmo on Instagram. And you're like, but he's okay, great. You know, it's not, it's not coming from like John Goldberger or somebody who's kind of these, you know, knowledgeable titans of, of the collecting world in, in any capacity. Um, so I definitely think that people are trying to capitalize on that in uh, in any way possible. But when it's something that's truly interesting, uh, where it's somebody who's really owned, really, really historically relevant, um, then yeah, you know, definitely. Or or if it's been you know from from somebody who who might not be even that important, but just maybe it was cool. You know, I mean, there are a lot of low dollar value. Um, race car watches that were worn by like the youngest winner of the Indy 500 or, you know, whatever, which nobody cares because he's never won anything else. And he's not, he's not a big name, but it kind of just adds to the story that, you know, this was owned by somebody who did something at some point that may have been quite interesting, uh, even though it's 99% of the world does not care. Um, otherwise, you know, definitely, I think it, it really depends on, on the watch for, for production watches. It, uh, it, it for, for production watches, it definitely adds a little bit more. And then for things that are already rare, um, I think it's kind of just an added bonus, but not, not usually, unless it's somebody really historically important, it doesn't usually add a ton more value in my opinion as a collector to say oh this was owned by you know who knows but 
Um, yeah, I mean, it, it it definitely makes things more interesting, and the paraphernalia th- stuff is 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 definitely is definitely a cool bonus. I've seen some really cool stuff come with watches, so sometimes you get lucky with that stuff. Do you guys want to talk about if there's any like watches that had provenance that might have like tanked after the fact because of a bad like um, a bad situation of like. For instance, Bill Cosby's Longines and Rolexes might have been worth money, and now they don't want to tell anyone that they're Bill <laughs> Cosby's. Well, the Madoff watches, right? I think he had like a couple of 130s or whatever, and just unsellable. The Marshalls were trying to sell those, and then all the Quartz Jaegers and all that popped up. I remember, uh, I think it was like Analog Shift had like two or three of them, like 500 bucks or whatever. Like, yeah, you, you can see all of the um, Rolexes and all of the paddocks and these horrible looking watches on Getty images. If you search um, uh, made off uh, government auction, you can get some yeah. high res photos of some horrible yeah. looking watches. But yeah. Yeah. Bill Cosby uh, actually had a lot of interesting watches. Um, reportedly, uh, he had a Rolex 4113 split which we know is, uh, you know, a couple million dollar watch. So maybe Nick Gould, uh, Nicoloy can, can hunt through some <laughs> old photos on Getty and elsewhere and see if there's any, any shots of him wearing it. But um, I'm sure whoever has it is not aware of that provenance necessarily or would, would not want to advertise it to anyone in the future. Yeah, and he also had a... Um... It, it, it appeared to be a, a Longines Wittenauer aviation watch, or maybe it was yeah, a reissue. It was a, no, it was, I think it was a vintage. He 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 was a massive vintage collector, and yeah. that was a, yeah an oversized Weems from the thirties. Uh, there was there was photos of of him wearing a, um, a lot of these watches, and you can really you can discern which models are what. But they, I guess, that's probably the the one that I would first think of of any vintage watch collectors, um, along with Madoff, if any that have kind of been a huge backfire in, in the topic of provenance. But I'm sure we'll see more as uh, the next few years follow. Yeah. Well, I mean, access you... issued watches always have have uh, potentially have have not done particularly well sometimes at auction. They've even been pulled from auction because of lack of interest, uh, and they've been a hard resale. Typically, I've seen a couple come up for auction and then get sold privately a couple of years later for 40 percent less, just because a lot of people, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of people who don't don't respond well kind of like putin's watches i feel like um for a select group of collectors it might be a plus but for a lot of other people it'd probably be a a pretty big negative if those ever came up yeah well didn't that one come up what was it the the mono pusher split repeater perpetual mammoth one that in 5208 yeah Yeah, the 5208 yeah i don't know i heard that that was BS that it was his watch. Someone just put the papers in his yeah. name, but um, but uh, I have no idea if that's true or not. But I heard on pretty good authority it wasn't. It had absolutely nothing to do with him. I heard. Dude, I heard that somebody was trying. Now. I heard. I heard that somebody was trying to gift it to him, and they couldn't <laughs> get it to him, <laughs> and so they they got stuck with this watch. And they were, you know. Do you guys want to talk about restoration more? I know we hit on it a little bit, but. Uh, it's always kind go. of a, a conversation that goes hand in hand talking about condition is kind of your general thoughts on 
restoration. It can be anything from recutting of cases, restoring cases to relooming things. We've talked about the cleaning of dials a little bit, especially by brands like Paddock, but maybe talking a little bit about your guys' general thoughts on restoration when it's okay and when you prefer not to see it. I prefer not to see it when we're talking about erasing case back um, engravings or things of that nature. I think that's kind of a, a one that all of us are on the same page on. Yeah, we had um, a watch at, at Christie's. It was, I think it was maybe the auction right after I, I left to start Win Vintage, but it was a Paul Newman, John Player special uh, from the original owner who was a doctor in Texas, had his initials kind of engraved large on the back with the date of his medical school graduation. So it was a gift from his uh, parents to him for graduating medical school. And uh, we had a well-known prominent collector come in and look at it. Uh, and then he turned it around, looked at the case back and said, ah, the, what a shame. If this was another auction house, they would have polished that off before they put it in the auction. Um, so it was, uh, it was, uh, sad to see a remark like that for what I thought was a very, very cool selling point of the watch. And I, and I think things are turning around where people like that. I mean, once you polish that off, it's gone forever and it's just like any other John player special, but, but that's unique by the fact it was from the original owner, a doctor, medical school, graduation, Texas. I mean, all of that was really encapsulated in that engraving. Yeah. And, and for those who want to polish off the engravings, I mean, just probably you could even buy a case back instead and replace it and keep that thing, you know, like the Vacheron route be nicer yeah. for everybody. Yeah. Gabe, what about you? How do you feel about engravings uh, being removed oh i think it's such a shame it first of all i find a lot of because there's such a variety of the the typefaces i just find it to be interesting to to see them and it's cool i mean i have a couple and i'll never know who they belong to but i always try to put you know a sticker on it so that way it doesn't it just doesn't wear off if i wear it a lot um but i i i find them i find it to be almost heretical to to polish stuff that kind of stuff um yeah but uh it's interesting about about restoration because a lot of it you know it's less so in in watches because you can use period correct parts and you can you know save the cases and you know in other in other in other types of collectibles like art uh, especially works on paper and uh, for example, cars where, especially with cars, you deal with rust and it's, well, sometimes the whole part is compromised and you have to put in a new one. And, you know, ha- what constitutes no longer being correct is period correct, but not born to the watch correct? Or is that an acceptable skirting of that rule where it's, Potentially, it's it's all correct, but not born with the watch, and people care about that, or uh, people don't care about that. I, I happen to think with the restoration, it really depends on which pieces. Um, obviously, if there are things that are broken in the movement, a, a lot of times the winding stems will break, and you know you'll put in a new one or try to source another one. But 
with a lot of brands, it's hard with a lot of vintage watches and with brands that may no longer be around. It's quite hard to, to do that. Um, and I think, you know, with, uh, with certain components, movement components, especially, but definitely not with dials and definitely not with cases. Um, you know, cracked crystals can, you could say, okay, for that, but, uh, you know, the others can, can kind of go, but it has to be, um, has to be disclosed. And I think we're, we're, so we, the collector, uh, the general collector public has sort of seen enough movements to kind of understand when there's been water damage or when components don't look right or bridges or, you know, even certain engravings or serial numbers, the typefaces might be off. I mean, there, you know, there are whole Instagram pages of people sleuthing this stuff, uh, which has, which has really educated the public. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's important obviously to disclose all of that. And I don't think if it's disclosed, it's necessarily as harmful to the value of a watch as one might might assume um you know we, we kind of accept it with a lot of things um you know in, in in our lives already and would you rather have a broken watch or a watch with a newer winding stem that that works um you know it, this, so i think it's it's kind of an interesting moment where we can analyze every little detail and look at it and there are certain things that are clearly no-nos reprinted dials um you know things that are obviously being relumed and not disclosed or you know cases that have been badly you know overly polished and being trying to dupe somebody and saying you know it's it's all original or doesn't seem to have been polished and then you say oops but uh, I think the, the days of the oopsie are, are kind of going by the wayside pretty quickly, um, especially when we see watches that may be problematic sell for seven figures or more. Um, it's potentially, you know, I think we're, we're going to see more honest descriptors when people are selling watches. And it, it kind of gets difficult because we don't have, you know, an oversight committee or accreditation for, for dealers. So, um, you know, in certain cases, you'll, you'll never really know. And especially when it comes to Rolex, you'll never know what was really born with which watch, especially when it comes to dials. I mean, you know, we, we all know many, many stories of swap dials or, you know, dials in the drawer or bezels in the drawer kind of story, you know, um, again, you know, with like the blueberry GMT, there's been a lot of debate over the last five years and you see the prices fluctuate with the confidence in whoever comes out with the newer story and the more accurate story or the more believable story. And then somebody will come up with the opposite story and the prices will drop. So, you know, it's, it's uh, it really depends on what what everyone's comfortable with. Um, my view is dials, cases, bezels. Try to keep them together. Things happen. I've bought watches, vintage watches, where the bezels have fallen off. It happens. Such is life. It always reminds me of um, that Greek mythology thing. I think it's the Theseus ship. ship. Yes, right. It's yeah. like one is a. If you rebuild the ship, when is it not the ship anymore? If you rebuild the Rolex Submariner, when is it not a vintage Rolex Submariner anymore? Um, 
Eric, you obviously, I'm sure, have strong opinions on on this type of restoration stuff. Can you can you respond to anything Gabe said and maybe give some of your thoughts on when restoration is okay and and when you prefer not to see? I mean, I I, I think I, I would agree with Gabe. Uh, military watches, in particular, I think lose their allure when they're heavily restored, polished, everything else. You know, the other thing I wanted to mention is. I'm seeing a lot more watches where vintage Rolex watches where the loom is dyed uh, to be more of a yellow or pumpkin. And you can often see it because it's a little darker in the center. It's like it kind of permeates out. Uh, so it's uneven. You'll see like one spot that's a little bit darker than the rest. Um, so, you know, that that's always disappointing to see as well. And, um, you know, it's it's common for bezel inserts to be faded. Um, and, uh, I think it's, you know, I just don't like to see that. I get upset when I see things kind of artificially, um, enhanced, if you will. Uh, I like things all natural. Um, but it's, it's very interesting. You know, unfortunately there are people who doctor watches to make them look more attractive, like I, like I said, fading bezel inserts, um, aging loom, tons of the Explore 216570s you see. They have this, the Italian is Shishi de Mais, I think, where it's like corn loom, where it's yellow, you know, on a white dial. But in fact, that's redone or dyed to look yellow. Uh, because people like that look. So tons of those are, are being made um, in order to respond to people that like the look. So it's just, um, you know, it's very disturbing for me. I don't like seeing all that stuff. Are there any telltale signs for for that specifically or for things that are artificially aged or rubbed? One of the telltale signs with the Polar Explorer 2 reference 16570 is simply to compare the the serial number to other examples online. So you're not going to see a 1995 Explorer 2 with yellow, bright yellow loom. And, and you'll see that all the time. Um, it's just 99% of them I see are probably not legit. And uh, whatever dyes or paint and often it's imperfectly applied. And as a dealer, what's the margin of allowability for like, say, something pre pretty rare to very rare that's been slightly restored or enhanced? At what point do you as a dealer say, nope, can't do it? Or at what point do you see something that needs a little bit and then you say, okay, it's worth doing a little touch up here and there I disclose it, not a big deal. It doesn't really affect the value one way or another, but it might be appreciated because it's a little nicer now. One thing that I think is very acceptable are replacement crystals. If I can plug my friend, Dr. Greg Petronzi, who co-founded the Trudome company, and that's really been his baby. Um, in many, many cases, I feel like the Trudome crystals are even better than the original crystals from Rolex particularly because those crystals we're often looking at are 50 years old. So they just kind of can get foggy, cloudy over time. So I know people that had 
a lot of great vintage subs and and they replaced all of the crystals with true domes and kept the originals to the side it's just a really allows you to enjoy the dial i see the same with explore he basically at present has three crystals the the true dome d19 which is for submariners particularly no date subs but you can put them on 1680 date sub subs as well the d38 is for gmts that's um that's the domed crystal that people like that probably was never originally on a gmt but um and then the the d22 which is for the explorer twos so um those are all really really excellent uh and things that i would recommend um the, I'm not a huge fan of all the case restoration work, but I've seen some watches that were just destroyed by polishers and, you know, the holes on the Submariner look like they're like an inch wide, practically like they're just so bad that um, the correct work to kind of make those holes smaller where the lug, you know, the lug holes where the spring bars go to make those better different work to improve the cases the issue is you don't want the watch to look like a cyborg where the case looks brand new new old stock and the bezel and dial show a lot of patina um i hate that uh but you know of course there are people that that do the case and then they tumble it to make it look vintage with they they'll put it in a bag of nails and shake it up and do other kind of aging of the case to make it look vintage and um it can look good that work but it's never as good as the original of course what's what's y'all's um opinions on you know for instance luminous hands the loom happens to fall out of one that's got a little bit wider of um, a setting if it's an alpha or like for instance it's a alpha or kite hands um on the universal, for instance, we were talking about earlier, you know, I'm personally not, you know, I'm not really too deterred by the appearance of a universal Genève with kite, kite hands and no loom in them. But some people might be a little bit more, you know, a little bit more adamant of having the uniformity, even if the loom doesn't, you know, correspond with the loom that's on the dial, right? What's, what's the general consensus between you two? Um, for me, I'd rather have all the loom match so if that means slightly missing loom which um, i find sometimes can be a little bit unsightly but i would i mean there's nothing more more jarring than when you look at 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 a set of hands and markers and the hands don't match each other or the hands don't match the markers to the fact to you know by by a big margin and that's for me like a big no-no so there are a lot of watches I find where there's like a, you know, a missing piece of loom in the hand, for instance, a Submariner or something like that. I like to get that patched um, just with similar looking paint, at least for two reasons. One, um, it would be a bit like looking at a supermodel who's missing her two front teeth. It might look weird. Um, first of all, second, um, the, it does threaten for that hole to get larger or for other fissures to develop. So stabilizing it and filling it in is helpful. Sometimes 
depending on the person who does it, they can kind of look shiny because it's like a glue compound or whatever, but I still would rather that than, than a big hole in the, in the loom. And I think from a commercial perspective, people don't really like to see that if they're buying a watch, first of all. And then second, you know, I'm kind of forgiving about loom because I don't think these things are going to last 500 years with the original loom in the hands for like Submariners and GMTs. And like the whole idea is the watch itself can last 500 years, but, um, but it's not, it defies physics for the loom to be just sitting with no support behind it. It's going to fall down like a trampoline eventually just sagging with time, you know, and it's going to fall out. So um, I'm not, as exercised about loom, but I do care about the original hands being there. Um, you know, having like a very old sixties or fifties Submariner, but having newer hands that are bright, shiny kind of white gold hands that uh, doesn't look great either. Uh, and you see it a lot, but then suddenly the loom will match the dial, but the hands are super shiny. It just doesn't work. Well, I think that kind of wraps us up for discussion um, in terms of today, but I, I can't imagine that we won't be revisiting this subject in a future episode, maybe a part two on uh, cases and dials or restoration in general. Anything uh, you guys want to say in the closing statements? Uh, I guess last our last episode, we the Hodinkee reference points on the Explorer hadn't come out yet. So if you haven't had a chance to watch it, I hope you enjoy it and read the article by uh john views it was great working with him on it yeah it was great i loved it i've been waiting a couple of years for that one so I'm, i was happy to finally see that came out because i i love the submariner one and i use it i use them as, as kind of uh guides for uh for general knowledge and more specific knowledge which is really helpful so congrats on that that was excellent thank you gabe thank you charlie we'll be back uh maybe in a week for our 10th episode of significant watches and let us know your feedback. If there are other topics you want to cover, uh, we're, we're looking for things to discuss and we've got plenty of things on our list to talk about, but, uh, we'll look forward to your feedback. Thank you. Mm-hmm.